reading this morning is taken from 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 19 through 21. So he departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Sapphire, who was plowing with the twelve yoke of oxen before him. And with the twelve, and Elijah passed by him, and cast his mantle upon him. And he left the oxen, and ran after Elijah, and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. And he said unto him, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? And he returned back from him, and took a yoke of oxen, and slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen, and gave unto the people, and they did eat. Then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. The blessing that's ours this morning is certainly a great one that we are able to gather on the first day of the week. Of course, this is the fifth Sunday in June, and certainly we're delighted that God has blessed us today with the opportunity and the health and all the other things that make our gathering possible. Certainly, we're thankful not only for the membership, but every visitor that's come our way today. We hope that each of us can certainly be able to say that it was great for us to be here because we magnified the name of God, and we, of course, lifted high the banner of His will. You may notice the title of the lesson today perhaps will bring to mind an activity that's very familiar to many of us in this part of the world, to be sure. In fact, on the next slide, a few introductory thoughts about this. We know a great deal about plowing. For the most part, either we have often done it, or we have certainly been in a position to witness others who have. Today, we have the luxury of tractors and other mechanical devices that can make plowing much more readily accomplished. But of course, in Bible times, and in really not all that long ago, one would use mules, one would use oxen, one would use the back-breaking character of a double plow, or something like that, to break ground. And to do that in a way that could ultimately lead to a crop for one's family. We're going to talk a bit about plowing this morning. But as we do that, we're going to use the text that was read just a moment ago. Mike read before us in 1 Kings 19. I hope that you'll have that chapter open before you. We'll be looking at the last few verses of it in just a moment and draw some practical lessons about Christianity based on that discussion. As we do that, you'll notice near the bottom of that slide, it will include part of our consideration of the call of Elisha. Let's move into the lesson without any further delay. The call of Elisha is what was set before us. The times were dark and bleak, to be sure. The children of Israel, at least in so many instances, had chosen to go aside from the truth of God. They had turned to idols. They had turned to other activities. And in so doing, God called a man named Elijah. And Elijah preached with power, and he preached with directness, and he challenged the people to follow God and not idols. I mentioned that the times were challenging and difficult. Of course, Ahab was the king on the throne, and he was no friend to servants of God, and neither was his wife Jezebel. They, in fact, were enemies to the things that God would lift high. You may notice in on that slide the following things happen. Elijah, nonetheless, in those circumstances, 
was equipped with boldness. He was equipped with directness. And he challenged the people. Challenged them to be servants to God. But it was in that very scenario about the middle of that slide. God came to Elijah and had a message for him. Although Elijah at that, point, at that moment was a bit dejected, God nonetheless said, Elijah, I've got a work for you to do. Among other things, that's a lesson for us. Don't ever allow yourself to be so dejected, so disappointed, so low, if you please, that you're on the verge of giving up. For God said, I've got more work for you to do, Elijah. And he named off two kings he wanted him, or individuals he wanted him to anoint to be the next kings, one over Judah, one over Israel. But he also had a third work for him. I want you to anoint the next prophet, the one who will serve after you're gone, Elijah. There would be a man named Elisha. And his call is what is set before us on this occasion, and you'll notice the following. In verse number 16 of 1 Kings 19, God's words to Elijah were these, And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. God by name selected the one that would be the successor to Elijah. It would be a man named Elisha, and the following point perhaps is worthy of note. When Elijah went to anoint him, what was he doing? Was he in one of the schools of the prophets? Was he studying and learning in such a way that he might craft his technique and be a better prophet of God? He was not. Let me start reading in verse number 19. So he departed thence, that's Elijah, he departed and found Elisha the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him, and he with twelve. And Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. And he said unto him, Go back again. For what have I to do to thee? And he returned back from him, and took a yoke of oxen, and slew them, and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen, and gave unto the people. And they did eat. And he arose, and went after Elijah, and ministered unto him. It would seem then that what has just been put before us is a terribly interesting scene. And it's one that we might develop beginning about the middle of that slide. It would seem that Elisha's father, or perhaps even he himself, was rather well-to-do. Did you know how many yoke of oxen were involved here? Elisha was plowing, and there were 11 other men plowing along with him. And you can imagine how quickly a field might be plowable if one had had 12 yoke of oxen. And it would seem then that that leads us to appreciate Elisha apparently was somewhat well-to-do, or either his father was. And you might also note the following. As they were plowing, Elisha was the one bringing up the back. So the other eleven were plowing, and they were one right beside the other. And as they plowed this field, perhaps a picture not unlike this one would at least be a reasonable consideration. You could see the distance, a second team plowing behind the main one in the picture. 
interesting as you give thought to the kind of wealth that might have been involved in order for a man to have sufficient capability of having that many oxen and that many plows and that many servants to plow them. At that point, that brings us back to the text. Let's go back to that previous slide. When Elijah then came and called Elisha, how did he react? Verse number 20 says, And he left the oxen. Elisha left the oxen where they were, no doubt having brought them to a stop, and then he proceeded to follow Elijah. The text goes on to say he ran after Elijah. He didn't just saunter and walk. He actually, the text informs us, he ran after him. And in so doing, that verse goes on to say he had one request. He asked of Elijah, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. To say all of that is to say in a very interesting way, near the bottom of that slide, all that Elijah was asked by Elisha was this, I would like to have a farewell time with my family. And you'll notice that's exactly what happened. Elijah granted that. He says, go back again, verse 20. But verse 21 perhaps is the most interesting for our lesson this morning. He returned back from him, so he went back from Elijah. And it says, He took a yoke of oxen and slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen. I wonder why he did that. I wonder what would motivate a man. Here were two perfectly good oxen. It would appear to be the very ones that he had just been plowing with. He took these oxen. He slew them. He offered them, at least in some fashion, as that verse describes, boiling their flesh. And he used to, in fact, kindle the fire, the instruments of the plows he'd been plowing with. Was it that destructive? Was it wasteful? I've lost a plow, and I've lost two perfectly good oxen. And yet the text says, He arose, went after Elijah, and ministered unto him. May I offer to you, as you and I close that slide, there will be several implications in that for you and me today, as interesting as that may seem. The first lesson, the first observation, is the totality of the commitment that Elijah presented. Let me pull some of those together and see if you and I can appreciate more directly the nature of the text. First of all, here was a man plowing. He was not again in the school of the prophets. He was an humble laborer who perhaps was blessed to have wealthy kinfolk, perhaps his father. And yet as Elijah came and called him, you'll notice he initially said, he ran after him. He had made a commitment. The commitment of Elisha should not be too quickly passed over. He apparently could have had a very fine life with the wealth of his family. And yet, quickly, he was able to make a decision to allow that to remain behind him and agree, I will become your servant, Elijah, and I will do that which God has asked of me, becoming a prophet. Now keep in mind, he knew very well the challenges that already Elijah had faced. There was Ahab, there was Jezebel, 
There was the ongoing evil in the idolatrous nature of the people, and yet Elisha was quick to take upon himself the role of a prophet. Would you and I have been so quick? Or would we have offered a number of excuses? I can't. I believe we can begin to appreciate more interestingly this choice, but that leads me to note this. The principle that we find in here was a principle of commitment following decision. Elijah had called Elisha, and Elisha said, I'll do it. And his commitment was so total that here's what he did. He took that yoke of oxen he'd been plowing with, and he killed them. I'm never coming back to this style of life again. And he took the plow he'd been plowing with and destroyed it. I'm never coming back to this style of life again. One must be impressed with Elisha's commitment. And may I say, what a bedrock appreciation that puts before us. Because our commitment and service to Christ must be no less. It must be total. That's all the Lord will accept. You may notice then some of these observations. I thought this would be an interesting time to put in place a scenario with which we're all very familiar. There are places of business who have full-time employees, and they may also have some part-time help. Now, the part-time help, you and I know, are not held to the same standard in many cases. They're only there sometimes, and not only that, they may be given a very different kind of work to do, but they are not held to the same rigor in many instances. You and I may already make an initial assessment. God has no part-time workers. May I say it again? The Lord Jesus Christ has no part-time workers. You and I are full-time Christian employees. We don't just participate whenever we feel like it. We don't just involve ourselves in the work when we want to. We're a full-time employee, aren't we? Elisha seemingly understood the nature of God's call that way, didn't he? He burned the plow and he killed the oxen. I'm not doing this anymore. I have a different labor, one to which I've been called by God through Elijah. You'll notice on the slide, there are a number of verses in both Old and New Testament that reminded Israel and that also remind us about that kind of thing. The very first of the Ten Commandments was this, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. In terms of service then, service to God was the highest. I might invite you to consider that in the New Testament, was the Lord any less demanding in His presentation? In Matthew 12, verse number 30, Jesus, on that occasion, having been challenged by Pharisees and others, He rather bluntly said, He that is not with me scattereth abroad. Now, quite often as we've given attention to some of the features of that verse, notice again what it says. So if you aren't with me, you're scattering. You're doing damage. Now, you and I know that if we're with the Lord, that means we're serving with Him. We're following His footsteps. We're laboring in His cause. But notice again, He says, There's no part-time workers with me, for if you're not with me, that means you're really harming the cause. Part-time help in Christ does more damage than it does good. 
In fact, those that might be labeled hypocritical in that fashion, they harm the influence of Christ. Others have much less interest because they can easily see the hypocrisy in it. Elisha, you see, understood that too and wanted no part of it. Let's notice one more thing. In the New Testament, as Jesus made other references along that line, in Matthew 10, verses 37 and 38, it was pointed out this bluntly and this directly. That man that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And that man that loves brother or sister more than me is not worthy of me. Now to our ears today, in fact to those ears then, no doubt that sounded challenging and no doubt that sounded rather demanding. But it is. Jesus said, you must love me supremely and you must obey me supremely. And one more time, notice the total commitment that Jesus demanded. On that day that you and I became Christians, and I would invite you to go back in the scene of your memory. Do you remember the day you were baptized? Maybe it was after a sermon in some church service, or maybe it was on a Thursday night, or maybe it was on a Saturday that you, upon thinking about it, you called up the local preacher, or perhaps you spoke to your parents and said, I want to become a Christian. And no doubt there was a lot of smiling and gladness and happiness, and you made your way to the church building or where a, bapt a, bapt a baptism could take place, and someone immersed you into Christ. And you came out of that watery grave of baptism and your sins were gone, forgiven. It's not that they were simply put behind you for a while. They were forever removed. And the day you took that confession right before your baptism, someone asked you, do you believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God? And you said, yes. Or you said, I do. And when you said that, you promised total, complete, absolute dedication and commitment to Jesus throughout your entire life. That's what you promised. That's what we all promised. Notice again what Elisha did. He followed it up with a demonstration of absolute commitment. This is what I'm leaving behind. I'm never coming back to it. You and I left behind a world of sin. Have you ever gone back to it? I hope we have each had enough commitment and dedication that we've never wanted to. But maybe we've stumbled and we've fallen. Maybe we've slipped back into a way of living that we know isn't right. But I hope that this commitment that Elisha demonstrated is a reminder of the fullness of the commitment that the Lord expects of us. Let's close that slide like this. I put in quotation marks that that call that you and I accepted that day. Remember Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. You and I accepted the call. There were no conditions of our response. We didn't say, I'll follow you if. None of us said, I'll be your follower so long as. We simply said, yes. We said, I do. And that means no matter what the circumstances that come your way or mine, they could be challenging and quite likely they will be. The devil will make sure of it. He will ensure that there are temptations and scenarios and matters that in fact are quite demanding. But remember, you and I, no matter what, said, I'm going to follow the truth. I'm going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I've listed some examples on the slide for you. In John 16, 2, look at what Jesus told His apostles. Now, that was on the night before He was going to be crucified. And yet to them, He said, there's going to come a time when men are going to think they're doing God's will when they put you to death. How would you like to hear that? And yet they continued to follow Him. They certainly had moments of doubt and question, but when they were baptized in the Holy Spirit from that time forward, it would seem that their commitment was so total and so complete. In Acts 8, verses 1 and following, after the death of Stephen, a great persecution arose for the church at Jerusalem. What if you and I had been a member of the church at Jerusalem in about the year A.D. 40? So Stephen had just been killed, and so we know what happened to him. Would I be next? Would that cause me to miss some assemblies? Would I suddenly not come much anymore because I'd fear for my life? Those brethren, it says, they went everywhere preaching the Word. They didn't leave the Word behind. Why? Because they understood the commitment of Elisha. Total commitment's what the Lord demands. As you and I close that slide, may we say one more time, no part-time hell in light of service to Christ. But that does immediately beg another question. If the Lord makes this kind of demand of us, what right does He have to demand this? What right does He have to make such a requirement? I thought it wise to at least put in place this element in the lesson before we use it in a moment for yet another point. Look at what He did for us. When you and I were disgraceful and shameful sinners, He loved us. Now it's easy not to care, I suppose, about someone you don't know very well. No, today there are people living in lots of countries around the world and you and I don't know them. We have no clue about the character of who they are, what they stand for. And if they die today, well, maybe our thought would be, so be it. But yet the Lord looked upon you and I, and though you and I were sinners, we had transgressed His will, we had shown disfavor toward Him, and He still sent His Son to die for us. His Son took your place and mine on the cross for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He died. In Romans 5 verse 8 it says, But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We, you see, were the sinners. Jesus was not, and yet He took our place. He died for us. He shed His blood that you and I might enjoy salvation. No wonder about the middle of that slide, then you'll notice this. God gave the finest that heaven had to offer. Haven't you ever considered it like this? When it came time for there to be some kind of measure to take care of the sins of man, God's all-powerful. Why didn't He create some animal? That was blemishless and perfect, and let that animal be the sacrifice for us. But He didn't do that. Why didn't He create some particular human being and make that human being in such a way that the human wouldn't sin and that let that human shed His blood for us? But He didn't. He searched through the halls of heaven and found the finest treasure there and sent Jesus Christ to this planet knowing full well that He would be tortured and crucified, knowing full well what the human family would do to Him. 
and yet he was supposed to die for them, and he did. That's what God did. If he did that for us, does he not have the right to demand the best of us? Our full and complete service. No part-time help in service to Christ. You'll notice then about the bottom of that slide, how many examples do you and I have in the New Testament? Individuals such as Paul in Galatians 4, verses 4 through 6. Did he not say that in the fullness of time God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law? And then he described that you and I through that sacrifice then have the luxury, the blessing of referring to Him as our Father. If God gave His best that way, He has the right to expect our best, our full and complete commitment. Closing that slide then is this. In John 10 verse 11, Jesus Himself said, I lay down my life. He voluntarily gave His life. In so doing, you and I should voluntarily give our life for Him. That does lead to a third point, however. And that point is this one. What are some specifics about this? Now notice we've already learned what Elisha did. His dedication, his commitment was sufficiently understanding in total. He burned the oxen and he destroyed the plow. What are some practical ways that you and I can then examine ourselves? Is my service to the Lord total? Is my commitment as the Lord would have it be? Or am I found wanting? Let me revisit a point we made earlier and perhaps then say a few more things about it, using the Word of God to assist us. May I encourage each of us, we must be determined and we must be dedicated. I know that's easy for each of us perhaps to imagine on a Sunday morning, but that needs to characterize us on Monday afternoon as well. Thursday morning, Saturday night. The point is, every time, day or night, every moment, you and I serve King Jesus. That means we must allow His will to determine what we shall think and what we shall say and what we shall do, without exception. Because there's no part-time help in Christ. He doesn't want my service just on Sunday morning. He wants my service all 168 hours of every week. For that reason, look at some of these observations. Plowing is not easy. I'll freely confess, I watched my grandpa plow with mules, but I was too little to do much of that then. But I could watch the challenge and difficulty of how he would have to work and to maneuver that plow through the long row in the hot sun. You would want the plow to be close enough to the plant, but obviously not too close. And sometimes that ground was hard and filled with clay, and it was a demanding thing. And imagine doing several acres that way, and sometimes on a hillside. Plowing is not easy. The Christian life is not easy. May none of us ever be naive enough to think that it is. Oh, I know the devil can make a fine sale. If you'll become a Christian, oh, the Lord will take away all the difficulties and He'll just make your life filled with ease. That's not the way it is. We're going to have the same health troubles that others have. We're going to have challenges in finances. Our families are going to have problems. 
there are going to be difficulties that come our way. That's just how it is. But you and I have got to be determined. On the day that we became a Christian, we made an eternal oath that no matter what, even if it costs me my life, I am going to be faithful to Jesus Christ. And the book of Revelation points that out to us time and again, how sometimes they lost their life because they wouldn't recant the name of Jesus. You and I are living in troublous times in that there's a clear movement against Christianity in our country. We know it. We can see it. Times may get far worse before they get any better. I don't know that. That's just a possibility. But you and I have got to be determined and dedicated. Look at the next point with me. The life of ease that sometimes some think that Christianity perhaps promises, the Bible doesn't promise it. The Bible promises rest after we're finished with this place. Revelation 14, 13 puts it like this, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. You can rest in eternity. There's no rest here. No part-time help in Christianity. You and I must be dedicated to the point that we consider this. Are we praying as we should? Every day. Every day. Praying unto our Heavenly Father. Thanking Him for all the good He's done for us, but beseeching His aid. Beseeching His help and His wisdom and His insight that we might carefully and sinlessly sojourn through the bombs that the devil puts around us. What about attendance at the services? Am I there every time? The day that you and I became a Christian, we made an oath we're going to be there every time. How am I doing with that? Am I doing okay? Every service, Bible study, worship, doesn't matter, I'm going to be there. Am I doing okay with this? If not, that doesn't say much about my commitment. Elisha burned the oxen and destroyed the plow. What about you and me? Perhaps it's fair to close that slide like this. Those challenges of personal examination also lead to this one. I thought that picture was interesting. You'll notice there's a lot of fish swimming in a given direction, but there's one going against, the, going against that direction. In most cases, that one is you and me. Our world is overwhelmingly following the norm, following the society and culture, and Christianity is going to stick out like a sore thumb. The way we think must be different. We think like this. The world thinks based on some other line of reasoning. Though the world will often insult and perhaps even revile you and I, you really believe that? You honestly think that happened? You really believe there was a flood that covered the whole world? We do. We absolutely do. And you really believe there's going to be a day of judgment? Oh, I sure do. And every one of us are going to be there. And you really believe that there's a hell to avoid? We really do. In fact, we believe it so much that we're dedicated and determined in absolute ways. I hope that picture reminds us that if you and I are just following the school, that means we're following the many. And Jesus said the many are going to be lost. 
The Lord said that in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, narrow the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. We must be among the few. We must be. But the next idea is this one. May I suggest right now matters could well be fine and perhaps good for you and me. But you know things could change. It is in that regard, may I say, that notice what commitment Elijah made. He burned the ox and he couldn't go back to them even if he wanted to. We must never quit. Never quit. No matter what happens in the Christian life, the reward is worth it. Heaven is worth it. Eternal security with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is worth it. We must never quit no matter what the circumstances in this life could be. Every time I think about that decision that Elisha made, it's so overwhelming. The overwhelming character of that decision leads me to note this. Thirdly, do not compromise. I realize how tempting the devil can sometimes make that. If I compromise, I can hold on to Christ, but at the same time, I won't look quite so out of place with the world. There is no compromise with Jesus. It's all or nothing. In 2 John, verse number 9, he said, If you transgress and go against my will, you don't have me. We can't compromise it. If you do, you destroy it. At least its effect upon you. Didn't Paul tell the Galatians in Galatians 1, verses 7 and 8, Though we, or an angel from heaven, should preach any other gospel unto you than that which you've received, let him be accursed. Anything that is not received, if you and I try to change it or pervert it, we've lost its power. So we mustn't quit. We mustn't compromise. One last thing. We mustn't look back either. Elisha, as I've already mentioned, when he received that call of Elijah, it was his firm intent to never go back. And as a sign, as a recognition of that fact, he burned the animals, destroyed them, and did away with the plow as well, it would seem. You and I, when we're called into Christ, the devil can sometimes make that world of sin look alluring, appealing, very attractive. And make no mistake about it, sin is attractive. It really is. But may we never forget this. Its attractiveness is only for a while. Moses, it says in Hebrews 11.25, chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Sin is pleasurable, no doubt about it. But when it comes time to pay the piper, the pay just is not worth it. In eternity in hell for a short time of pleasure here, not a good exchange. May we not look back. Isn't it true that Paul told the Philippians in Philippians 3, verses 13 and 14, he said, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And he had just prefaced that by saying that it was his appreciation not to look back. Today, I hope this lesson has been a motivation for each of us 
in light of our service to Jesus Christ. That's why I entitled it the way I did it. In the call of Elisha, plowing in these matters in relation to Christ, we've learned that the commitment that the Lord expects of us is very similar to what was expected of Elisha. But not only that, you notice that Jesus, of course, had something to say in a passage that probably sounds pretty familiar to this. In Luke 9, verses 57 and following, it was there that Jesus, amongst those verses, said, Any man that puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. I hope that doesn't describe you or me at any point in life, but today's a good time to analyze. Have you started looking back? Have you t- gone back to a world of sin? If so, you know what you need to do. You need to appreciate what you stated on the day of your baptism, the commitment that you promised then that you haven't been faithful to. Thanks being to God, He'll welcome you back. But you've got to repent. You've got to confess those things. And we'll pray to God on your behalf. If today we could be of help to you in that way as a wayward child of God, don't remain in that condition. You don't have to. The choice is yours. The choice is mine. If we could be of help to anybody today, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.